Okay, welcome everyone. It is so nice to have everyone back for our Monday night series. This year what we're going to be doing is uh, modern Jewish history. Um, Modern Jewish history is a little difficult to define exactly where the modern era begins. Um, And of course, the 20th century is defined by the two major defining events of the Holocaust, followed, of course, by the birth of the State of Israel. So the series that I'd like to uh, discuss over the course of this winter is really going to be laying the groundwork for that event of both the Holocaust and then eventually the, the creation of the State of Israel. And we'll do that from beginning of the mid-1800s. This winter, what we'll do is from the mid-1800s to the end of the First World War. And then, Ritz Hashem, next winter, we will pick up from the end of the First World War and take that through uh, the birth of the State of Israel. For those of you who remember that we were in the midst of Tanakh in two, uh, we're going to take a little break from that just because this pandemic has thrown everything off. And God willing, we'll get back to that um, at some point. Now, there's really no obvious point to begin when you talk about Jewish history. Jewish history is as a, just like on a continuum. Like, where exactly do you start when you want to discuss uh, the modern Jewish uh, history of, where, of the period that we're in? Um, but we're going to start tonight with the Musser movement. And the Musser movement, which was a mid-1800s uh, movement, as we'll see, it continued into the early 1900s as well, um, I think is a good place to start for a number of reasons. Number one, it will help us understand the state of the Union, the state of the Jewish people during this time, as we're going to begin really into the era of Zionism as a political movement, and that's really going to take us through uh, much of the 20th century. And we'll understand the underpinnings of that um, through a lot of the issues that will be discussed through the uh, through the Musser movement. Uh, number two, um, it is uh, the birth of a modern era. It is going to impact the entire Jewish world, the way that yeshivas are run. The leadership of the Jewish people will almost all be influenced in some way or another um, by this. So it just seems like a nice place to start as far as that goes. And it also redefined how ideological warfare was waged in those days. Uh, and I say use warfare only slightly tongue-in-cheek because, as we'll see, it was, uh, it was no holds barred um, between the different factions amongst the Jews, uh, which is important to remember, as we'll see. Like, sometimes we look at what goes on in the world today and we say, like, how could people do that? We've been doing this for a long time, unfortunately, and so the more we study history, the maybe the better uh, we'll be at learning it. But uh, there are some new methods that were used, which have been very impactful until today as well. Um, and number four, and probably most importantly, this is a good place to start because the patterns that we will see that will be in terms of how the Jewish people addressed this new movement, fought against this new movement, and integrated the new movement will really lay the groundwork for Zionism and other movements which will come in the 20th century. We'll see a lot of those patterns as we, uh, as we discuss it. The truth is probably the most important reason why I chose this place to start is because my Rebbe in, in Jewish history, everybody should have lots of different Rebbe's in different areas. Rebbe's in how to daven, Rebbe's in how to learn, Rebbe's in how to be interpersonal in our interpersonal behavior. My Rebbe in Jewish history is, of course, Rivero Wine. He should live and be well, as I've quoted many times. So when he breaks down his Jewish history, he begins the modern period with the Muslim movement. So that's the real reason why I'm uh, starting it from here as well. All right, let's begin. Back to our uh, sheet. So uh, one other note for those who were involved in the Great Jewish Books course, which we did a couple of years ago, we did have an entire course on Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, who was the founder of the Musser movement. So we're going to review many of the things from then, but we're really going to be focused not just on the Musser movement itself, but on the dynamics that it created within the Jewish world and the opposition to it um, in the context that we just uh, spoke about for a moment. So what, what is Musser? What does this mean, the Musser movement? Now, the word Musser, 
Moser itself appears in the Torah, and it appears in the language of Chazal many times, and it has a little different connotation than the modern usage of Moser. In the Torah, we find it in which uh, Moshe Rabbeinu says, um, Moshe says to the Jewish people, you need to know today, it's not your children, it's you who saw the Moser of Hashem, who saw the chastisement, the rebuke that Hashem has done for us. And we find the same language in Sefer Mishle many times, Musr Haskel, Shma Bni Musr Avichan, and all, which always means discipline um, in the context of that original uses of Musr. But in Terebi Yisrael Salanter, who we're going to talk about much more as we go on tonight, who was the founder of this Musr movement, Musr had a little different connotation. It wasn't just discipline. It was in letter C in front of you. It was the experience of acquiring a fear of heaven, what we call Yiras Shamayim, a fear of judgment of heaven, a constant trembling before the prospect of heavenly scrutiny. It was living one's life knowing that one was being watched, one was being judged, and that every action that we take, every thought that we have, every word that we say is recorded for, for posterity, and it matters. And therefore one lives with that perspective. Now, that is not just, in Rabbi Yisrael's mind, something to be scared about, but it's a perspective of life. And it was a process of introspection and awareness. A Jew who's not aware can't be a Jew who lives with the sense that everything matters, that it makes a difference what he says or what he does. So it's a, it's a sense of living with growth and sensitivity to others of being aware, as we'll see from in Rebbe Yisrael's words, someone else's gashmiya, someone else's physical needs is the source of my ruchnius, the source of my spiritual growth. It's a process of character development and understanding of what true goodness and selflessness is. I want to share a couple. I have a lot of stories to share tonight. Um, I'm going to introduce them right now with that which of Beryl Wine says many, many times, and I'm sure you've heard this from me many times as well. And that is, not every story that, I, that he, he's saying about himself with that he shares and, I'm, and that I'm following in that path, I can't guarantee it's true. We have legends, we have stories which come down to us from sources that are impossible to verify at this point. You'll see some, I mean, one of them, I even want to just share how it's like, it's almost like the same story that came down in two different ways. But what's of value in the stories is the fact, as, uh, as again, Rabbi Wine says, they don't tell the same stories about the Chafetz Chaim as they do about Richard Nixon. So you learn a little bit about the person from the stories they tell. Can I guarantee that every story I'm about to tell you tonight is true? I don't know. I can't say that. But you'll see a picture of who Rabbi Yisrael Salanter was and what he wanted to give to the Jewish people. That much we'll, that much we'll see. Let me just share two stories um, about him that, that sort of define a little bit what he was trying to create, and we'll, we'll share many more over the course of the evening. There's a story that goes that two Jews were walking, and one says to the other, did you hear about the shoichet who came to Rabbi Yisrael Salanter? He said, what happened? He said, a shoichet, the, the slaughterer in the town, the ritual slaughterer came to Rabbi Yisrael and said, Rabbi, I can't be a shoichet anymore. Rabbi Yisrael said, why not? He said, there, there are too many laws I'm too afraid that I'm going to make a mistake. 
I'm going to think that it's kosher and it's not kosher and the people in the town are not going to, to eat appropriately. It, it's too much for me. Okay, so what do you want to do instead? So he said, I'm going to become a Rebbe. I'm going to become a Lamed in the Yeshiva and I'll teach boys Torah. Rabbi Yisrael said to him, I don't understand. You're too afraid of messing up a ritual slaughter so that a Jew might eat meat that's not kosher, but you're not afraid of messing up a Jewish soul? When you're in the classroom with your students, you are the conduit between Hashem's Torah and this child. If you ever get angry, if you embarrass the child, if you yell, can you imagine what's going to happen? Go be a, a shoichet. We'd much rather have you be a shoichet if you're not a... The other Jew turns to the first Jew and says, that's not the story. You got it all wrong. He said, the shoichet came to Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and said, Rabbi, I can't be a shoichet. I'm too afraid. Went through the whole process. Rabbi Yisrael says, so what do you want to do? He said, Rabbi, I'm going to go into business. I can't be a shoichet. I'll go into business. Rabbi Yisrael said to him, Business? You're going to go into business? Do you know how many laws are involved in honesty and making sure that you never cheat anyone out of everything, that everything is paid correct, every tax is paid correctly? Do you know how many laws there are in business? You're not afraid to go into that? We'd rather have you just stay in your... Uh, as a, a That's one story. There's a second story that picks up on a similar theme. His student, who we're going to talk about a lot tonight as well, Rabbi Yitzchak Blaser, known as Rabbi Yitzchak Petterberger, um, was his primary student. Much of what we know about Rabbi Yisrael comes from his student. Rabbi Yisrael wrote very little. Um, don't let any pictures taken of him. We have very little directly through him. But his student wrote a biography and published many of the letters that Rabbi Yisrael had written. He gathered and he published the letters. So at some point, Rabbi Yisrael sent him to St. Petersburg to be the Rav in St. Petersburg. Um, and Rabbi Itzla, his student, Rabbi Yitzhak Blazer, said to Rabbi Yisrael Salanta, Rabbi, St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg, there was very little in terms of religious life. He said, I'm afraid to go there. I, I don't know what's going to be. I have to worry about uh, Kasharis. I have to worry about Shabbos and, and Mikvah. Where am I gonna, who am I going to learn? But, like, to be the Rav in St. Petersburg, I'm so afraid to go there. So Rabbi Yisrael said to him, so who should I send there? Somebody who's not afraid to go there. That's, that's the kind of person who I want to be there. The person who knows that what they're getting involved in is not simple and has to be careful. That's, uh, that's exactly the kind of person who I want uh, to be there. Like all movements in Torah Judaism, and Rabbi Yisrael wanted to create a movement, what he wanted to call the Musser movement. So all movements, there, there can't be anything new. There is nothing new in Torah that we, that we can create something that didn't exist before. All that there can be is really an emphasis on something that always was there that might have been neglected, might have been secondary. For example, Hasidus and Zionism are going to be movements. Hasidus was basically just picking up on religious fervor, on prayer, on joy, connecting to a Rebbe. All of these things existed before, they just repackaged it and put an emphasis on it. Zionism as well, we're going to see as a political movement might be new. But the concept of the love of the land of Israel, you can't be a Jew if you don't love the land of Israel. Start from Avraham all the way through Sefer Bracious. It's nothing other than this is the land that I promise. Who doesn't want to live in Israel? Who doesn't want to move there? Might not be the right time for everybody. But the concept of a love of the Jew in the land of Israel is as Jewish as it gets. Zionism created... A, a movement out of that. Now, all of those things are movements 
which were already in existence are different than movements which are coming to change, reform um, in, in ways that are, are more complicated. Um, and usually, and as far as Torah Judaism doesn't have that same type of, uh, of staying power. Rabbi Yisrael, who had many, many sayings and phrases which he's left us, which we'll get to many, was, was said his whole existence was, I've come to reform Jews, not Judaism. He was living in an age of the reform movement, of the Haskalah, the Enlightenment, which we'll talk about. And he said, I'm not coming to reform Judaism. Judaism is perfect. I'm coming to reform the Jews who practice Judaism. The Jews had uh, issues, as we'll see. It was a very difficult time in Jewish history, and there were problems, and there were problems. And his mission was to reform the Jews um, in, in, in their lives. And there's going to be fierce opposition to this. And opposition, Rabbi Wan points this out as well, Opposition to movements is a good thing. You know, we're, we're a people that's slow to change. We have traditions. We have, this is what my father did uh, and his father did. And whenever anybody introduces something new to us, there's always a sense. We look at it, a scan, and we say like, and then we attack it to see like, what exactly is this? And that's actually a good thing because that which stands the test, that which manages to survive all of the opposition has proven its worth and we'll adapt it. And that which really can't survive the opposition, if it can't survive the opposition, so then it doesn't have the ability to make it anyway. And this movement also is going to address or deal with some major opposition along the way. Let's deal with the historical context in which this movement of Rabbi Yisrael comes into existence. And this, again, is very important just for our bigger picture of what we're hoping to cover. Um, Jewish life in the 1800s in Eastern Europe. The reality is, was a misery. Um, many people like to glorify life in the shtetl and, oh, if we could only go back to life in the shtetl. And, and somebody who says that probably does not really understand what life in the shtetl was like. Poverty was horrific. There's no other way to describe the poverty of the Jewish people other than horrific, high levels of unemployment. Many of the jobs that were created, like a gabai, uh, the vecker, um, we, like the shadchan, Nobody, they, there weren't jobs for people, the badchen. We, their jobs were created out of nothing to give people uh, what to do. Child mortality is estimated between 25 and 40 percent. 25 to 40 percent of child mortality, the child wouldn't survive beyond the years of uh, infancy, two, three years old. And that was a given in life. That not every child would survive, and that just that's how it went. Literacy and scholarship was for the elite alone, the elite, the wealthy. Otherwise, education was not something that was uh, in any way a given, and that was just the difficulties of living within the shtetl. Then you had all the problems from the outside, pogroms. You had government-sponsored persecution, anti-Semitism, um, and for the Russian Jews, the worst of all was the Cantonist decrees of 1827 to 1856. Now, this could be an entire uh, section of, of uh, Jewish history on its own. Uh, it's just worth a few moments because this really gave rise to part of the problem from which the Haskalah, the Enlightenment movement, uh, took hold. Um, in, in Russia in 1827, Tsar Nicholas I, may his name be blotted out from all of uh, history, uh, decreed... Now, he made this decree, this wasn't just against the Jews at first, but it heavily focused on the Jews beginning in 1827, that, the, that children needed to be conscripted into the Russian army. It was a decree specifically aimed at de-Judaizing the, the Jews 
and making them Christian and bringing them into Russian, assimilating them into Russian society. And the decree was that um, there would be four conscriptions per every thousand members of the community. So if you had a community of a thousand, you needed four, 1500 was going to be six, 2008, so on and so forth. Every year between the ages of 12 to 25, they would be conscripted for a 25 year army service. Now you didn't start the army until 18, but they would take the children between the ages of nine and 12. And even before they hit the 25 year service of the army at 18 would be put in what was known as Cantonist schools. The Canton actually means in in Russian a military camp where they would be tortured and trained to become uh, good Russian Christian citizens. This is a disaster of uh, enormous, enormous level on every communal, personal, and spiritual level. A child who was taken, you never saw them again. The likelihood of them surviving was slim. Surviving as a Jew was absolutely nil. It was impossible. It was, they, were, they were being targeted. Now, just think from a communal perspective, just to, to realize the, the pain that this caused, we're a community of uh, 550 families, let's assume, uh, just for arguments like 1,500 members of our community. Just our Shul, Bailey community, 1,500 people, every year would be responsible to provide six children. Every year, our shuls, a size of our shul community, six children every year. How do you choose? How do you figure that out? So the Russian government said, we're not dealing with it. You, the community, are responsible for figuring that out, which meant the leadership of the community, be it the Rav or whatever guidance the community had, had to figure out how are they going to choose six kids every year? Well, there were certain exemptions. Clergy was exempt. Certain wealthy people would buy themselves exemptions. Certain guilds were exempt. Certain levels of education were exempt. And then you have to choose everybody else. And literally, it's a disaster. You can't even say the words without crying. How they would have to choose orphans, choose the weak, the poor, um, anybody. That you have to figure out if we take a 20-year-old who was already married and we sent him... So then who's going to provide for his family? Maybe it's better to send a 14-year-old who doesn't have that responsibility. But those who couldn't stand up for themselves would end up being the ones whose children were taken. Every year, a community our size would have to come up with six kids. Every year. And you can imagine if the wealthy bought themselves out and never lost any children and their neighbors on the other side of town did, how did they go to shul together? How, how, did they, how does that work? when it was the Rav or the leadership that was somehow involved in all of this. Um, there was such a thing called the Chappers. The Chappers were uh, literal groups of people who would chop children off the streets. They would literally kidnap them, burst into homes in the middle of the night, take them out of their beds and hand them off to the Russian government. Take them on their, on their walk home from school, pluck them off, and you would never see them again. And this existed for almost 20, almost 30 years. It's estimated somewhere between 30 to 40,000 children, I heard some estimates as high as 50,000, were taken during this period of time. Now, besides for the loss of those 50,000 children, was this destroyed trust in the leadership of each community. With, throughout that whole Russian Pale of Settlement, 
it was just an absolute disaster. Now, together with the poverty and the anti-Semitism and the pogroms, and then from within this complete disaster of a system, several movements were born. It's in this world that we saw, we've learned about this before, the Hasidist movement, that entire movement is born, which was, there were three basic responses that the Jewish people gave birth to during this dark period of uh, of Jewish history. One was the Hasidist movement, which we're not going to talk about tonight, which is a Kabbalistic approach, uh, attaching oneself to the Rebbe, everything is holy, finding the holiness in everything, living with fervor and with joy. On the opposite end of the spectrum, we have the Haskalah. The Haskalah is the Enlightenment movement, which was a very secular movement of the Jews as part of the Enlightenment movement, which swept through all of Europe during the 17 and 1800s, um, led by Moses Mendelssohn, which was a rational, enlightened thought. There was going to be involved in the arts and the science and modern dress and culture and new education system. Remember, the Jews of this era were not allowed in anything. They were not allowed in the universities. They were not allowed to have land in certain areas. And so the Hasko, the movement said, of course, because you're backwards, you're old, you're smelly, you don't know how to speak or communicate, and you're not nice. Look at the communities, are disasters. And they created an entire movement, which again, there should be an entire class unto itself, of enlightened Jews who were going to get out of the shtetl and engage the enlightened world around them. Now, by definition, what that meant was leaving behind all of Torah observant practices, because that was the old, and now we're going to create the new. The battle between the maskilim, those who are adherents to this Haskalah movement and traditional Torah Judaism, was fierce because it was literally a battle for the soul of the Jews. You can imagine whenever you'd have such a movement, who, which demographic is most interested, most engaged in this? So of course, it's the youth, it's the youngsters, the, the young teenage boys in their 20s and then 30s. And the Haskalah movement, this enlightened movement, was enticing, it was engaging, it was opening up vistas which were unimaginable in the shtetl. And after all, the shtetl was a misery. You were poor, you were destitute, you were sick. Death was all around you. And the Haskalah was promising university, was promising enlightenment, education, theater, arts, science. Except part of that, and this is before there was such a concept of you can do both, that concept didn't exist. You couldn't do both. It was one or the other. And the, the, the traditional Judaism to, was losing the youngsters in droves to the Haskalah movement, which was a little different than the way the Reform movement grew up in Western Europe, in, Fran- in Germany primarily. But it was a, a similar idea of assimilating and ex- experiencing the world around us, which the shtetl did not do. So traditional Judaism was under attack, a serious attack, from the Hasidim on the one side and from the uh, Haskalah movement on the other side. Both of those were a, an existential threat to the concept of traditional Torah Judaism. If you didn't want to be a Hasid, and again, when the, in the classes we had in Hasidim, the original Hasidim were, was very complicated. Today, we almost view the Hasidim as the, those who are holding on to Torah Judaism, true, like there is a certain throwback. In the early days, the Hasidim, the Vilna Gon, for example, wouldn't allow any of his adherents to marry a Hasid because he felt it was a separate religion. Uh, it, it, it's changed a lot over the years. But in those days, 
you had the Hasidim on the one side, you had the Maskilim on the other side, and who was going to hold the, the banner of Torah? So Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's movement was aimed at that. It was going to be a, uh, a, a Hasidist movement for non-Hasidim. He actually used that phrase. He uh, he's re- su- su- supposedly was once in a uh, carriage riding with the Tzemach Tzedek, who was one of the Chabad Rebbes. And he said to him, I'm going to create a Hasidist movement for non-Hasidim, to revitalize the Jewish people, to focus on the individual, to self-actualize, to inspire um, to inspire them. And what he wanted to do was create a movement that was going to be known as this Musser movement, and he believed it was going to be a movement, was going to be a bridge between theory and practice. And he said, listen, everybody wants to be a good person. Everybody wants to be eulogized when they're finished in this world as having been righteous and kind and sensitive. That's what people want. But what Rabbi Shul said is that the problem is that people don't know how to do that. There's something happens in between the theory that they want and the person that they are and the life that they live. I'll bring you an example. I've brought this example before, so I apologize if you've heard this from me before. Um, almost any parenting seminar that you'll go to, the parenting seminar, whatever method or new technique they're promising to teach will start by saying something along the following lines. No parent wakes up in the morning and says, ah, another day to drive my kids crazy. Another opportunity to yell and scream and be exhausted in every way possible that I can make them frustrated with me and I am frustrated with them. Ah, can't wait to get the day started. No one starts their day that way. So why is it that you end the day saying, ah, why was this another day that was so frustrating? Ah, so then the seminar says, we're going to give you new tools, whatever it may be. But it's an example of, that's not how I want to be. So Rabbi Sorrell said, that's the Jewish life right now. Everybody wants to be righteous and good and kind and sensitive. We don't have the tools to be able to do so. When you don't have the tools, you fall back in some pretty poor choices. And... Let me said, let's let Musr be the discipline that will train us to become the people that we really want to. And that's going to require work. His, one of his uh, famous stories that they say about Rabbi Shal Salanter was he was once walking home late at night and he passed a uh, cobbler working on a pair of shoes late at night, 11, 12 o'clock at night. And he pokes his head in and he says, so late, isn't it time to call it a night and go to sleep? And the, the shoemaker points to the candle still burning and says, Rebbe, if the candle still burns, there's still more work to do. I can't go home yet. And Rishol said, Ah, don't you hear those words? If the candle still burns, there's more work to be done. And he saw that as a, a concept in life that our, our neshama is like our candle as long as it's still burning. If we're still here, if we have life with us, there's still more work to be done. Let's talk a little bit about his life and the concepts that he did, and then we'll tie that back into um, the opposition that he had. Rabbi Shalom himself, just to give you a sense of the timing that when he was born in 1810 and he dies in 1883, you know, which is an interesting thing, you know, for those of us who still remember 1983, so he died 100 years prior. It's not such a, you know, seems like it's still like not so uh, long ago. Now already, you add another 40 years or so to that. Um, like to my kids, 1883 is already, you know, for a long, long time ago, but that's when he lived. From 1810 to 1883, he was born into a rabbinic family and was very, very young, established as a Talmudic genius. He was 
uh, known really to be a, uh, had a tremendous head, and his father sent him to Salant. He wasn't born in Salant. His father sent him to Salant to study under Rav Tzvi Hirschbreuder. There were many different types of learning going on in those days, and his father wanted that particular type, and so he sent him to the small city of Salant. This small city of Salant became well-known, a tiny little city, because it produced three giants in the Jewish world. It, of course, produces Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, Rabbi Zundel of Salant. Rabbi Zundel of Salant became Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's Rebbe, not in learning, in life. Uh, let me just say, the third one is Reb Shmuel of Salaam. Reb Shmuel of Salaam eventually moves to Yerushalayim. He becomes the Rav of Yerushalayim for almost 70 years until the early 1900s. Uh, Reb Shmuel of Salant. But Reb Zundel of Salant, Reb Yisrael gets to Salant and he's learning under his Rebbe and he comes into contact with this Reb Zundel who did not hold any official position but he was known as a tremendously pious and saintly Jew and he introduces Reb Yisrael to the concept of Musr. The legend goes, the legend goes that Reb Zundel used to spend a lot of time out in the forest by himself and he would think and contemplate and he would daven and he would cry but he did it all by himself and Reb Yisrael wanted to see, he clearly identified this person as a holy spiritual man. So the legend goes that Rabbi Yisrael would follow after him, you know, hiding a distance away uh, to be able to watch and learn from Reb Zundel. The legend goes that one time uh, Reb Zundel caught him and he turns around quickly and he sees that Rabbi Yisrael is standing there. Reb Zundel said to him, Yisrael, he said to him, if you want to be a great Jew, before you can become a great Jew, you have to become a God-fearing Jew, to live with Yiras Shemaim, with the fear of heaven, like we spoke about in the beginning. And Yisrael referred to that instance, that incident really, as a life-changing incident. Here he had been focused on his learning, on his ability to become a tremendous Talmud Chacham, and he heard from this Reb Zundel that he needs to be focused on his personal growth, on his level of, of Yiroshamayim, of fear of heaven. And that really becomes his calling card throughout his life. He said about himself, I wanted to mention this because it's in this week's Parsha, um, he said about Reb Zundel, he was a Sulam Mutzav Arza. He was a ladder whose the feet of the ladder were planted on the ground. But the head of the ladder reaches the heavens, which is Yaakov's dream of this week's Parsha. He said that about his Rebbe Reb Zundel. Like we're looking at his feet down here, but his head is up in the clouds. He's up in Shemaim. And I, Rabbi Shol said about him, I don't even reach his ankles. What a great uh, particular tzaddik and, uh, and person that he was. Um, in 1840, at about the age of 30, Rabbi Yisrael moves to Vilna, and he sets up his Musser program there in Vilna. We'll get to in a moment exactly what that looked like, but he's not there very long until the Maskilim force him out, which we'll also get to in a moment. I just want to give a little biographical uh, sketch of him. He publishes almost nothing in his life. One of the few things that he publishes is the Geras HaMusser in 1858, and a number of articles in a journal that he founded called Tnuva, which I'll get to also in a moment. Uh, there's like so many things to talk about at the same time. I apologize. I keep saying I'm going to talk about it later. But uh, he, he published his own uh, journal, which was new for a rub of the town to do so. That in itself was a, uh, a, a new thing. But again, most of the writings that we have are from the letters that he wrote, which were published not by him himself, but by his student, uh, this Rabbi Yitzhak Blazer, Rabbi Yitzhak uh, Petterberg. Um, his mission could be defined as follows. He said, listen, the masculine, he said, are right. The arguments that they're making, that we're backwards, that we're smelly, that we don't talk nicely, that we cheat, we're not honest, everything that they're claiming about us is true. And we can't inspire the next generation if we stay there. Now, the masculine's response to that was, become secular. 
said, no, but, we're, but they're right about their complaint about us, and therefore we need to inspire from within and reform the Jew so that the Judaism that he's keeping is alive and, vi- and, and with vigor and in appealing to, to ourselves, and he said, and to the next generation. He used to say the phrase, it should be that the nations of the world see us and they want to make a bracha on us. Like, like Hashem promised to Avram, the nations of the world will bless you. Rabbi Yisrael looked at the shtetl and said, there isn't anyone coming here and going to make a bracha on a Jew the way that we're living. We need to become the type of people that when someone sees us, they're like, wow, that is a Jew. That's a human being. And if we live like that, then we will become that people. There won't be, we won't be afraid of losing children to other movements because we will actually be all that we can become. And he set about, now, I, I just want to make a comment here. Most of you are thinking, like, we do this all the time. Like, this is like your everyday uh, Shabbos drusha that you hear from your Rav uh, is about a lot of these things. He created and put into motion the ideas that are going to become the norm of speaking in the Jewish people. Live with passion. This is an idea. That's what needs to be done, to be meticulous in your mitzvah observance. Particularly, he said, in your interpersonal mitzvos. We're going to share a number of stories in a moment. That is a particular need that one needs to be very uh, careful with. He says, say good morning with a smile. When you say good morning to somebody, just make sure you smile at him as you say good morning. To live with sensitivity, being careful with other people's money. These things are all rooted in Chazal. He didn't make them up. But what he did is he brought it to the forefront of this is the way that we need to be sensitive and talking about how to live. Dress neatly, be filled with self-introspection, to be nice, minimize your anger, be patient. As I mentioned earlier, someone else's gashmi, someone else's physical needs are our own ruchnis, our own spirit. We grow spiritually by taking care of someone else's physical needs. And he embodied this. I want to share a number of stories just to sort of bring out some of the ideas in the way in which, uh, in which he lived, in the way that he saw some of the problems in the Jewish world that he was coming to address. Um, he, he, his uh, Rabbi Itzla Petterberger reported that he was once with Rabbi Yisrael on Yom Kippur, and there was a Jew, a very simple Jew, an unlearned Jew, who was working his way through the machzor. Al-chet, al-chet, al-chet. You know how the, the list goes on Yom Kippur. And this Jew is crying his heart out, each and every one literally wailing and crying. And you know how it goes sometimes in Shul. The people around him who were not uh, wailing and crying were bothered by this guy carrying on, uh, wailing and crying, al-chet, al-chet. And they thought, you know, who's this guy? He's a simpleton. He's a nothing. He's not a learned person. What's he doing? So the gabai of the shul basically came and uh, pushed him to the back of the shul. Like, wherever everyone was like, you know, you stand over here and do your thing, but like, you're bothering us. So Rabbi Yisrael reportedly said to Rabbi Yitzchel he said, in, in that moment, what you had was on the one hand, a Jew crying over sins that he never committed, and a Jew who thinks that because he has an office, and he has a position that he can violate 
the worst prohibitions in the Torah on Yom Kippur. And look at what happened, how backwards we are, that the Jews crying over things that he didn't even do should be humiliated and embarrassed by the person who's supposed to represent, who's supposed to represent a position of authority. Look at what a state we're in. There is a similar story that said, and this is again where you see sometimes stories have the same theme, that was said about Rabbi Yisrael himself, that he was once davening on Yom Kippur, and he didn't have a machzor. You know, in those days, the machzors weren't as easy as they come by in, in, uh, today. And so he lost his place, you know, and had it mostly memorized, and he lost his place. So what do you do if you're in the middle of Shemona, so you're saying all your achets on Yom Kippur, and you lost your place? So he leaned over to the guy sitting next to him to, you know, catch over his shoulder to, to see a, a machzor, to see if he can get his place back. And the other Jew who was uh, uh, trying to dive in Shimon Esrei, also basically pushes him over and got all upset. He said, what are you doing ruining my kavana? I'm trying to dive in and you're... And Rabbi Yisrael said to himself, like, oh, see, we have a problem. Everybody's so fa- focused on their own spiritual growth. Look at what's happening here. Was, both of those stories are of the same ilk of where he saw a problem of a person who might be so focused on what he's doing, but they're losing the big picture of what's going on around me and who else is being uh, impacted. Famous story of Rabbi Saul Salantar on Yom Kippur that's told in many different variations, but it's the same story over and over again, is that one year he didn't show up to shul. And everybody's waiting. They didn't want to start Yom Kippur without Rabbi Yisrael. Um, he doesn't show up. He doesn't show up. Eventually, they say, we have to start. Uh, they start. They finish. And they're, meanwhile, they're sending people out to look for him. They find Rabbi Shawit, or they find him. As he was walking to shul, he had heard a, a baby crying inside one of the little uh, homes uh, on his way to shul. So he pokes his head in and he sees that there's a baby in a crib and a six-year-old girl who had a bottle in her hand and she had fallen asleep. And the mother had clearly put the six-year-old in charge of the baby and the mother went to shul. Meanwhile, the six-year-old fell asleep. The baby woke up, and the baby's crying. So Rabbi Yisrael stopped in to give the baby the bottle. While he's doing so, the six-year-old wakes up, realizes that she's home all alone, and says, I'm afraid. Will you stay with me? So Rabbi Yisrael says, of course. So Rabbi Yisrael spent Yom Kippur night uh, babysitting the six-year-old and the baby, so that their mother would be in shul. And he said, that's my kol nidre. That, you know, here I'm taking care of these two little kids. I'm, I'm just as happy here as, uh, as being in shul. He was known for going around town fixing the shutters of the poor people. You know, the windows all had shutters, and he would fix them. Himself, he would hammer them in. Uh, why would he do that? He said, because at night, when the wind blows, the shutters, you know, clank, and it wakes people up, and it shouldn't be that a person has shutters that wake them up. These poor people can't afford to fix it, so I would go around making sure to fix the shutters so that uh, it doesn't wake people up. He was uh, famous for saying when you put on your talus in the morning, so you wrap your talus, make sure when you're putting on your talus that the strings of your tzitzis don't smack somebody else in the face while you're busy putting on your, your talus. And he used to use that again as uh, this, th- that same theme of um, you're, you're wrapping yourself in your own spiritual, make sure you're not hurting somebody else while you're, uh, while you're busy doing so. There's uh, two other stories that are reported in his name. He used to have a thing about making matzah in Erev Pesach. He would uh, do it himself. He'd be involved in the making of the matzah, and one year he couldn't go. See, he sent some students uh, to, uh, to a certain woman who was, uh, would bake the matzahs, and, um, and he gave them a whole schmooze before, and he said, please be very careful 
um, n- not to not to stand too close, like stand far back when she's making the matzah. I don't want you to be near her when she's doing it. So he's like, what's the big deal? What do you want? He's giving them such a hard time. He said, listen, this woman's an almana. She's lost her husband. She bakes the matzah. And if you're looking over her shoulder, you're going to put pressure on her. And the Torah has a halacha. You're not allowed to uh, afflict in any way uh, an almana. And I'm afraid you're going to do so in your great zeal to make sure that I get the matzahs that I need. Meanwhile, you're going to be in violation of another prohibition of afflicting this poor woman. Give her her space. Leave her alone. She's going to do just fine um, without, you looking over, uh, without you looking over her shoulder. Her, his uh, final uh, Shabbat Shuvah, at the end of his life, he moves to Paris. We'll talk about it again in a moment, as I said before. Um, he's going to be living in Paris, and he was invited to give the Shabbat Shuvah drasha. The big, it used to be the Rabbanim spoke two times a year, big drashas, Shabbat Shuvah. And uh, he gets up to give, um, he gets up to give his drasha. And this is towards the end of his life, and he blanks out. He can't remember a thing that he was supposed to say. See, if the room is packed with people, Rabbi Saul Salanter is giving the drasha. Everybody comes to shul. He's standing up there at the lectern in front of uh, everybody. He's got nothing to say. Put his head on his shoulder, on, a, on the lectern, on his hand, and he started to cry. And after a few moments of weeping, he looked up and he said to everybody, he said, you see what becomes of a mensch? You see what becomes of us? We spend our whole life and we're worried about, did this person give me enough honor? Did that person treat me well? And all of these things, this pettiness that we run around with, he said, look, look what happens. And he sat down. And uh, again, it says, as is reported from those of that was the like, most powerful Shabbat Shuvah leading into Yom Kippur, uh, that a person could hear Rabbi Yisrael standing there with uh, crying over his inability to remember anything uh, that his final words on earth, um, his, uh, his final words on earth were, uh, he died almost penniless with nothing. And he was in a he was in a, an apartment on his own in Paris, and the landlord was in the building with him. And he called the landlord in, and said to him, "Don't be afraid of being in a room with a dead body. There's nothing wrong with it, and there's nothing to be afraid of." And literally, the last words of his life were trying to put someone else at ease that they shouldn't be afraid of the situation of being with him, as he knew that he was. Uh, that he was about to die. There are many, many stories of Rabbi Yisrael. They all have the same theme, and that is he was a giant in interpersonal relationship, in being sensitive to the needs uh, of others, and was invested in bringing that to uh, all of us. What was his method? How was he going to do this uh, for the rest of us? So first of all, he brought back the old traditional Musr's farm. He's, he was not the first one to create the idea of a Musr Sefer, Mesil Yashar, by Rechaim Lutzato, Moshe Chaim Lutzato uh, was one of the class of the Path of the Just, was a classic. He, he brought back Musser works, which had been written in previous generations, as a primary source of, uh, of study. And he had a number of tools that he um, brought into the Jewish world. One was known as his Bodidus. I'm on uh, the, the, yeah, the top of the page here, on the other side. His Bodidus is seclusion, something that he learned from his Rabbi Reb Zundel, to be by oneself. To be able to think, to be able to unplug, something that we are so desperate for in today's day and age where we're plugged into our phones, life never stops, we never get a break, there's always something going on. The idea of being able to sit by oneself for a few moments and just contemplate, just to think, 
to take stock of who am I? What am I? What are my goals? Am I reaching them? What do I need to do to get there? A person, I, I think, uh, you know, in, in our day and age, you know, if it wouldn't be for Shabbos, when would we have a second? Our, our days are so filled. We, we can't ever get away with it without being busy with something. Shabbos is such a gift. So even within Shabbos, we need to learn how to utilize it. But the idea of contemplation, of just spending some time thinking. He created a concept called the Beis HaMusr. He wanted a house, a designated place where in that house you would study Musr. So that that's what would take place. You would go to a place. It's always easier to do something when the people around you are doing it. You know, use uh, Shabbos or kosher as an example. If you're in a community where all of your friends and family are keeping kosher and keeping Shabbos, it's a whole lot easier to keep Shabbos and keep kosher. If you get thrust into an environment where no one around you is doing it, that's a lot harder to swim against the stream even though it's something that we might value and want, it's just hard when nobody around us is doing it. It's, the, it's the, one of the great values of community, of shared values. So he said, if we want to work on Musr, we need a place to do it that when you walk in, this is what's going on over here. This is what we're studying. These are the types of behaviors we're trying to create within the community. And there'd be a place, he, the way that he wanted it is that a person would come home from work and they would stop off in the base on Musr for a half hour and they would learn there. That, that's what you did. On the way to work, you'd go daven, you'd stop off in the base on Musr, you'd learn a little bit of Musr, you'd go to work, you'd come back. It was like the central place where all of that would take place. The idea of a Musr Seder, that there was a time of day that you would learn Musr. The idea of the Shmuz. Now this might seem like we're so familiar with this. The concept of a Musr Shmuz. Again, in those days, the norm was the Rav of the town spoke twice a year. That there should be, he created the idea, one of his tools, that there should be a regular daily or weekly drasha, a sermon, a Shmuz on Musr topics. Now, I, uh, again, I, I think I said this when we, when we covered this, uh, his, when we covered Sos Lantern, the great Jewish books course. I, I, don't, I wouldn't put a number, I don't know how to put a number on it, but I would put a very high percentage of Rabbanim today. If you would go to any shul in the world, I would guess it's over 85%, 85-90% of Rabbanim in the world, when they give a Shabbos drasha, th- what you leave with after the drasha is some ethical message. They're, they're not giving a shir in halacha during their Shabbos morning drasha. They're, they're giving a drasha that leaves the listeners with a take-home message to be better, to be a better Jew, to be a better interpersonal in, interpersonal relationships, marriage, raising children at work, whatever it may be. It's not something just in halacha. And that was his creation, that that should be a schmooze, the type of uh, topics that are discussed. The idea of a pinkas or a personal ledger, a person of a cheshbet nefesh. They would write, keep track, a journal. How am I doing today? What did I do today? What did I accomplish today? What do I need to be better at? The idea of living with his slavos, with fervor, with tefillah, with a sense of purpose to break us out of mitzvos anashim milimuda, a living life by rote. Fulfilling mitzvahs, the Chazal talk about doing a mitzvah but not even thinking about it. Um, 
again, I've told this story many times. I, I, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story, but um, I, I heard it from, or in the name of Rabbi Stroll Reisman, who is the Rav of a shul in New York, um, that he was once asked a question by somebody up in the mountains uh, during the summer, one, one, uh, one davening. The person came to him with his tefillin shalyad on his hand, already wrapped in his, on his hand, and he was holding his tefillin shalrosh in his hands. And he said, Rebbe, I'm not really sure what I'm doing right now. I'm not sure if I'm in the middle of putting my tefillin on before davening, or if I just finished davening and I'm taking my tefillin off. And that's representative of we are thinking about so many other things when we daven. We don't even know if we davened or not. I'm not sure what, did I just daven? I don't even remember what I just did over the last, maybe it's five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it may be. Now, again, I don't know if that story actually ever happened, but it's indicative of a, everything is by rote. I'm just going through the motions. And his mission in life was to break us out of that particular, um, that way of life. And that's going to be the, the challenge of living in a modern world, but being alive with our Judaism. I, I put here in the box a number of just sayings and teachings because they're so beautiful. I just want to quickly run through them. Um, you know, one's character traits are his only true possessions. What does a person have in life? This is actually based on a Rashi and Chomish in the beginning of Parshish Noach. But he would just say it in, in ways that you would rem- That is what you have. Who you are, the traits you have, that's your most important possession. And he would say it's more difficult to fix a single negative character trait, more difficult than reviewing the entire Shas, all of the Talmud, 2,700, easier to do that than to work on and correct a single character trait. There is no needier person than one who is dependent on Kavod. Oh, what a phrase. There is no one more needy in the world than somebody who needs Kavod. Person's ability to see in the distance can be obstructed by a single coin. We're blinded by by money from really being able to see. Don't recommend bitachon when it comes to another person's need. Brilliant phrase. You know, we can talk about bitachon, having faith and trust in Hashem all we want, and we need to. I actually think it's something we don't talk about enough. But don't start talking about it when someone else is having a problem and you say to them, Oh, you just, you just need to have bitachon. No, no. He has a need. Fix his need. Help him. Take care of him. Don't talk to him about bitachon. You have your own needs. You want to talk about bitachon all you want. That's great. But don't, don't throw bitachon on someone else's problem. Fix it. Help him. Be there for him. And I mentioned before, when you wrap yourself with your talus, don't uh, you know, slap someone else with your strings. And he said, it's worth the, a study of a lifetime of Musa to refrain from a single word of Lashon Har. The Chafetz Chaim is going to make that idea famous. Just one word that you refrain from saying of La- an entire lifetime of work is worth it just for that one word of Lashon Har that you're able uh, to be able uh, to do so. And lastly, when he, he was once told that a shochet had been disqualified, there were suspicions uh, regarding the flaws in his knife. A knife has to be, a, a, it's very complicated, the knife um, that the shochet uses. So there was a shochet in what's a particular town who was disqualified. The people in town were suspicious that his knife wasn't being used right. So Rabbi Shal commented, who knows how many flaws were in the knife used to slaughter the shochet. This is his livelihood. So how many flaws were in those people's themselves? They were the knife that slaughtered him while they're so worried about the flaws in his... in his. Okay, let's take a few moments that we have left and uh, talk about some of the opposition that, uh, that he faced. And he faced a lot of opposition in his life. Um, the opposition really came from both sides. 
Um, on the one hand, it came from the Maskilim, the Enlightenment movement. Now, they're they a very interesting dynamic with Rabbi Yisrael, because on the one hand, they originally viewed him as an ally. And that was because he was basically saying the same things as them. He was saying, the Jewish world is broken. The people are not honest. They don't act with integrity. They don't act with sensitivity. They're not modern. They don't look right. They don't talk. Everything that they were saying, and he gets up there and says the same thing, except he looks like a real religious Jew. So they actually viewed him as an ally at first. But they didn't fully understand. They eventually came to that conclusion very clearly that while he agreed the Jew was broken, he did not think Judaism was broken. And therefore, he set out to fix the Jews, but not Judaism. There's a phrase, again, that I've heard from Rabbi Wein hundreds of times, not to confuse Jews with Judaism. Judaism is perfect. Hashem's law is as perfect as it can be. The Jew fulfilling that law human being, not necessarily perfect. And the mistake that we make, and certainly the nations of the world make looking at us sometimes, is confusing the Jew with Judaism. The Jew is not perfect. It's true. We have our own flaws as individuals, as people. Um, but that doesn't mean Judaism isn't. And Rizal said, we don't need to change Judaism. We just need to reform the Jew to inspire him to live with passion and, and everything that, <coughs> and inspiration that he needs and that will fix all of our problems. So the Maskilim actually, again, thinking that he was on their side, in his early years in Vilna, the Russian government uh, set up, it's hard to go back to a day and age where this is the case, they set up rabbinical schools to train modern rabbis. The Russians, again, were interested in um, modernizing the Jew. And so they actually set up rabbinical schools in which they were going to, and they hired all the Maskilim as teachers, they hired non-Jews as teachers, and the Maskilim suggested that Rabbi Yisrael should be the head of this new rabbinic school. Rabbi Yisrael, of course, declined. Um, and the Maskilim went to the government, and the government then invited Rabbi Yisrael to become the head of this institution. And that is an invitation that you can't refuse. And so he left town in the middle of the night. He left Vilna, which he had been in for eight years at that point. And in 1848, he basically flees to Kovna, to Lithuania, and he sets up shop there. Now, whereas in Vilna, he had been very successful. He had set up a number of these Beis HaMusser's houses, and it became a movement. It became things that people did. When he gets to Kovna, he does not have that same success. Um, one of the reasons was the Maskilim of Vilna uh, spread the word that uh, spread the word that he was anti-Maskilim. And not just that he was anti-Maskilim, he wasn't an ally of theirs. He was actually their greatest threat. They came to realize that, yes, he recognized the same problems, but he had a different solution. And if he were to succeed, if he were to raise the level of the Jew and inspire them, then their fertile ground, their low-hanging fruit that they were getting for their movement would be at risk. And so they became uh, mortal enemies of Rabbi Yisrael and his Muslim movement. And the Enlightened Movement and he and the Muslim Movement had many, many clashes. Again, it's very hard for us to go back into an era where the fighting was the way that it was. But that's the way it was. I just want to share two quick anecdotes um, 
that just demonstrate the, the tension between the Enlightenment movement, these Maskilim and Rabbi Yisrael. One has to do with Rabbi Yisrael's own son, his youngest son, Yont of Lipman Lipkin, um, left Torah Judaism. He was a math genius. He shared uh, the genius of his father, but not the soul of his father, as was very common in those days, as it is today. Um, uh, just like we found leaders of the Hasidish movement became Misnagdim, leaders of the Misnagdim became Hasidim, so it goes. So Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's own son, his youngest son, was basically an irreligious Jew who went to the university, he got a PhD from the University of Vienna, and he was invited to teach in St. Petersburg, where they made, he was such a genius, they made an exception for him, and they waived the law that required you to be a practicing Christian in order for you to be on uh, staff as a professor, and they allowed him to be on staff. And he discovered what became known as the Lippmann parallelogram, which was in applied mathematics a, a big deal in the world in the late seven, uh, 1870s, and it became, became of international renown. And this Tsar of Russia uh, acknowledged him for having created this and brought great uh, name to, uh, to Russia. The Maskilim took out an ad in the paper, um, and the ad they took out declared how this son, uh, Rabiantiv Lipman, was the crown jewel to his saintly father, and the father who did not prevent his son from studying in the university so that Torah and wisdom will be united in the person of his son for the glory of the Jewish people. The shame or the tiferet as the... So the Maskilim pray, what an amazing thing that we have the saintly leader and his son has brought such honor to the Jewish people through this uh, mathematical discovery. The following edition, Rabbi Yisrael took out an ad, and it is one of the most painful things to read. Um, but this we have records of. He took out an ad and wrote that since the truth, I quote, since the truth has been my guiding light of all my life, I am compelled to publicly announce that my son is not the crown to me, as the editor indicated, but rather the opposite is true. He is a source of disappointment and sadness to me, and my heart weeps over his way of life. Anyone who loves him and can influence him to change his way and not go counter to my soul and wishes will do me a great favor to this very day. Yours in faith, Yisrael of Salat. And this was played out in the newspapers. The Maskilim taking out the ad saying, what a crown jewel to his father forcing his father to say, I, I, I can't say he's my crown jewel. He has left the path of his father's. He was a totally irreligious Jew. And uh, please, he put out word, if anyone can influence him, you know, you'll, let, you'll be repaid in this world and the next. It was reported, I mentioned that Rabbi Yisrael sent uh, his student, Reb Itzla Petterberger, too. He became known as Reb Itzla Petterberger because he went to St. Petersburg to become the Rav. It was reported that one of the reasons why he did that was to try to influence his son to be able to, uh, to bring him back. Um, he was quoted as saying, uh, a father has to be willing to go. When, when Reb Itzla said, ah, can I go to Petersburg? He said, you have to go. And he said, a person has to be willing to go to Gehenna for their children. Whatever it takes to be able to try to influence, to be able to try to teach, it's, uh, this is what you need to do. 
Um, and so he, uh, he sent it there. There's another anecdote which just describes a little bit what, what it was like. Um, again, I, I can't verify the veracity of the story, but it, it, it says a lot about what the time was like, that um, there was a, a masculine in the town of Vilna, which had plenty, uh, who died, and uh, the Hevra Kaddisha didn't want to deal with him. You know, it was it, not from Munzerah. He didn't uh, pay his Hevra dues, and he caused us untold pain and suffering, and he was an antagonist his whole life. They, the Hevra Kaddisha left him alone. It got to the point where the, the Russian government intervened. And the Russian government forced the Hevra to address this and to bury him. And they said the Magid of Vilna, Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Yaakov, who became uh, the RJJ Yeshiva in New York, was eventually named, eventually became a Rav in New York. Uh, you have to be maspid him. You have to give a eulogy for this particular masculine. So the story goes that uh, uh, Rabbi Yosef Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, um, gets up. Now, in those days, eulogies were not like eulogies today. Eulogies were uh, dissertations in Halacha, in Gemara, Agatha. They would be a whole sheer, the way that they would put the whole thing together. It was, a, it was a, a lost art form of the way that they used to eulogize in those days. So he gets up, he says, I, I really don't know what to say. I've never delivered a eulogy for a Moskil, a person who was antagonistic to total life his whole life. I, I don't know what to say. But, please God, many more will die, and I'll get better and learn how to handle this. Now, again, I don't think that story actually ever happened. I can't verify it. But the fact that they tell such stories is just an indication of the dynamic between the Maskilim and the, uh, the Torah-observant Jews of the time. And what I want to point out is that their battles were fought in the newspapers. This was a shift. This was the first time that an ideological battle played itself out in newspapers. Jews became, um, this is in the, in the 1860s, 1870s, that became the primary form of communication, controlling the media. Now today, that's like obvious. That's how you get word out. That's how you get ideas out. That's where the battles are fought. That was a first where religious Jews would write and publish articles in newspapers to be able to make arguments and get word out. And the Maskilim had two very famous newspapers, Hamelitz and HaTzofia. Um, and, and religious Jews would contribute because it was a form of getting, uh, getting the word out. By the time we get to Warsaw, in the 1930s, the late 1930s, um, before the Warsaw Ghetto and the war, there were over 230 Jewish publications in Warsaw alone. It, it became the method, and this battle between uh, the Musser movement and its antagonist was really one of the first times that it plays itself out in a public way in those newspapers uh, as well. The other battle that, that the Musser movement faced was from the Misnagdim themselves. And I want to just focus on this for, uh, for two minutes. The Misnagdim, which were the traditional Jews, didn't like this movement at all. And it sounds a little bit strange to us, like, what's wrong with this movement? Like, it seems like it's all good. Like, we're learning Musr, we're working on ethics and being more sensitive and kind and passionate about life. It's like all good. They had four major complaints, and you'll see echoes in this throughout uh, the rest of the 20th century. Number one, they claimed, you're confusing that which is primary with that which is secondary. Meaning, what's primary is Torah observance and Torah study. Yes, you need to be a good person, but their claim was, you're making a religion 
out of that which is secondary. The idea of Musa, now again, the way that we deal with Musa today is not the way that it was envisioned by Rabbi Yisrael, who saw a movement, you like joined, you became part of this. They argued, you're making a religion out of this. We're not a religion of Musa. We're a religion of Torah. We're a religion of Torah observance and learning Torah. And you have to learn a little bit of Moser. You have to become a better person. But you're making this into its own religion. Number two, they said, you're uh, creating, a, uh, it's, it's divisive, that which you're doing. In other words, if you were in, if you were part of a base on Moser, so you were in the club. And if you weren't, so then you're out of the club. And by definition, it, it can't be that there's something going on that you're either, like Torah Judaism is Torah Judaism. There shouldn't be a, like you're a card-carrying member of something or not. That's not how it works. And it shouldn't be that you're either in or not in. It's, if, it's, if it's valid, then it's for everyone. And it became an elitist movement, specifically when he moved from Vilna to, to, to Kovna, where it didn't take hold of the masses and it became its own little group. It had arguments against it that it was too modern because, again, he was addressing the same issues as the masculine and he was trying to, we, you need to dress nice. You need to dress in a way that looks appropriate. They were into secular studies because we need to reform and you, learn, you become educated a little bit. So those issues, in the same way as the religious community was very opposed to the Haskalah, who openly threw away everything, and obviously Rabbi Yisrael was not at all involved in throwing away everything, but the idea of introducing secular studies and a modern way of dress uh, rubbed every Allah, uh, that group uh, the wrong way as well. And uh, the very simple claim they had of, this is not what the Tata did. Like, whatever you're introducing, it's new. It's not what my father did. It's not what his father did. And therefore, there's a, a lot of disdain with uh, that which is new. This battle between the, mis- the Misnagdim themselves, the religious Jews, and, uh, and the Muslim movement really is, is what, I don't want to say put an, I can't say put an end to it, but it developed more after Rabbi Yisrael himself died, and then the movement was taken over by his student, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Blazer, as I've mentioned. He moved back from St. Petersburg to Kovna, and he became the head of uh, the Kolo in Kovna. Um, the Kolo in Kovna had about 160 people at its height. Many of the, uh, the last of that group were leaders in, in America. Rabbi Reb Ruderman, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Neri Israel in Baltimore, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky in New York, were part of that, as young men, they were part of the Kovna Kolo. Part of the Kovna Kolo supported a yeshiva right across the river in Slobodka. Slobodka actually means suburb. Um, and there was a yeshiva founded there. And uh, the money that the Kolo raised for its Kolo, a little bit of it was siphoned off to, uh, to, the, uh, to the yeshiva. From that, the, there was a, a lot of tension. The Maskilim claimed that the Kolo, which was led by Rabbi Yitzchak Blazer, was stealing money, and then they were supporting a yeshiva, which was illegal at the time. They weren't supposed to do that. Uh, that, that whole story is a fascinating story in Jewish history. I'll leave it aside for now, other than that it, uh, the Slobodka yeshiva split into two. The, name, the yeshiva that we know as Slobodka is really the second yeshiva, which uh, broke off. Um, what, what I want to just conclude that section with is that there was a conversation between Rabbi Yisrael Salanta reportedly and Rabbi Chaim Brisker. Rabbi Chaim Brisker was one of the leaders of the, of the Misnagdim, of the Yeshiva world. And Rabbi Yisrael said to him, listen, what I'm doing is like comparable to medicine. The Jewish people are sick. And when the Jewish people are sick, you have to take medicine. And sometimes medicine is painful. And so your claims that it might be uh, elitist or it's uh, playing up a secondary issue and making it primary, it, maybe a little bit of it is true, 
but we need it. We're so desperate for the medicine. We're so sick. Sometimes you have to swallow a bitter pill to heal yourself. And Reb Chaim Briska reportedly said, I agree to your, your parable in the same way, but you have it backwards. If a healthy person takes medicine, it often is dangerous and harmful to him. It only works if you're sick. And what you're creating is, is, is like a poison. So listen, if a person, uh, you know, Nebuch is sick, so we literally put poison in our body sometimes to heal the sickness. But if a healthy person would take that poison, disaster for him. What you're doing is that. In essence, what they were arguing about is whether or not the Jewish people were healthy or whether or not they were sick. Reb Chaim Briska said, we're learning Torah. We're healthy. We don't need any of this. And Rabbi Shaul said, no, 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 you guys are sick. You do need this. And so, uh, you know, two Jews, two opinions as to whether or not this was necessary or not. Was he successful in his movement? The answer is a very simple yes and no, as is a good Jewish answer for all uh, big questions. As a movement, no, he was not successful. The movement fizzled out and did not become what he envisioned it as a movement. But what it did do is it became integrated into Jewish life. All of the idea of a Musr Shmuz, the idea of a Musr Seder, time designated to learning Musr, the idea that a Rav would get up and deliver a Shmuz regularly to his congregation, all of those ideas are standard, normal things that we don't think twice about. Um, And the yeshiva world adopted his methodology in an entire world of of the yeshivas, the, the a whole system, Kelm, uh, Navarduk, Slabodka, Tells, Radin, Mir, Kletzkin, Slutsk, all of these yeshivas, some of which are even more well-known than others, were all founded by students of Rabbi Yisrael and founded in the vision of, uh, of the Musser movement. And so the, the movement itself became integrated into the Jewish world. As a movement, it fizzled. There's no such thing as the Muslim movement anymore. The idea that he promoted did become part of Jewish life. These ideas of the arguments against it, we will see are literally, as we move now into Zionism, as we pave the way in our next couple of classes, the exact same issues of taking something secondary and making a religion out of it, um, it's not what the fathers did. There's like, we're going to see these ideas play themselves over as we go through the rest of 20th century um, Jewish history. And the clash between the three, what were that, at that point, three camps. You had the, the, uh, the Hasidim, you have the, the uh, Maskilim, the enlightened secular Jews, which are really two camps, the Reform and the Maskilim, some in Eastern Europe, some in Western Europe. And, and then the, the Misnagdim, the Torah Jews, the, the traditional Torah Jews who were just the, the non-Hasidim who are now in, invigorated with Rabbi Yisrael are now going to move into the next stage, which is the birth of political Zionism and how the clashes that they had already throughout the 1800s are going to manifest themselves um, in, that as, uh, in that as well. And Mertz Hashem will get to some of that as we continue our travels through uh, Jewish history. The Muslim movement as itself, as uh, you know, Rabbi Yisrael was a, an impeccable person and left with so many amazing stories and so many amazing lessons which are relevant to today in terms of how, how to live with inspiration and passion and sensitivity to someone else as we increase our own spiritual growth but always looking out to make sure that our spiritual growth is not coming at the expense of, uh, of anybody else uh, around us. Okay, that'll be the end of our uh, first session. Look forward to getting together uh, next Monday night, Mirz Hashem, um, as we continue our journey. And uh, the handouts are there. And uh, have a wonderful night, everyone.